thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientists, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine. I'm Phil Sansom. This week, we're looking ahead to the science coming up in 2021. From the Large Hadron Collider restarting, to the USA likely rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, to hopefully an end to the pandemic. Plus, we're making some New Year's resolutions that are going to last. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, joining me this week are two scientific heavyweights, prolific neuropsychologist Barbara Sahakian and food and obesity geneticist, as well as TV presenter Giles Yeo. And between us, we're going to be talking to a range of interesting guests that are dropping in over the next hour. First, Giles Yeo, it's great to have you. How are you? Hello, I am doing very well. Thank you very much for having me on. I always love to be on the program. Now, the the most exciting thing that I've seen from you recently is your incredible Twitter feed full of photos of the most amazing food. What have you been cooking? (laughs) This is what I call, well, I I started this actually doing the first lockdown. We're now in the third lockdown, obviously, and called it Lockdown Cuisine. And it's, look, I just know how to cook. I'm not actually a cook, if you know what I mean. So tonight, for example, is vegan night. So tonight I'll be doing tofu, cashew nuts and vegetables in a spicy black bean sauce with rice. I wish I could be invited around to your house. You're always welcome. What does your 2021 look like scientifically? Well, I am, as you said, someone who studies obesity. Specifically, I study how our brain controls food intake. Now, until very recently, everything we know about how the brain controls food intake has come from animal models, in particular mice, right? Because we can't legally yet, or ethically for that matter, get into a human brain. However, now with a couple of technological jumps, as well as a collaboration we have set up with the MRC Brain Bank Network within the UK, we now have access to post-mortem human samples. And so we're going to be doing single cell sequencing on a part of the brain called the hypothalamus, and this acts as the fuel sensor. And we're funded to do up to about a million of these cells. And so we want to know actually what is there in the human hypothalamus. It's all fine to be understanding this from a mouse perspective, but they are small. They have whiskers and a tail. We don't have whiskers and a tail, and some of us are hairier than others. And so I think we need to understand what happens in the human scenario. And that's what I hope to do in 2021. What's the point? What does that help us learn? A lot of the drugs at the moment that are out there that are used for treating obesity target the brain. Okay, And we know they kind of work because you go through randomized controlled trials, and we know when you inject them into animals, they actually work. But in order to fully really harness the power of these therapeutics, I think we really need to understand 
what neurons they're actually being signaling to, you know, what kind of receptors are on the surface. And these conclusions we're making from animal models, do they actually hold true in humans? I mean, broadly speaking, the circuitry is conserved, but is everything conserved? You know, are the same type of neurons that exist in mice, do they exist in in the human brain? And so that's what we're interested in trying to do. And also with us today is Barbara Stahakian. Barbara, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. What does your 2021 look like? Because I focus on cognition, Phil, I go across a whole broad range of areas. So one study that we've got going is on understanding the effects of the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors on cognition, including on social and emotional cognition. Now, the SSRIs, as you may know, are the drugs that we use to treat people who have depression and anxiety. And serotonin, of course, is very important in the brain because it helps us with our normal emotional mood regulation. This sounds particularly relevant because of how hard this pandemic has been for so many people. Yes, I I think so. I mean, unfortunately, the number of people with anxiety and depression has gone up during this uh, pandemic lockdown. So it is very important to know more about how these drugs affect us. Are you looking at anything else pandemic related? Because there's just so many different aspects and so many ways people have been hit. Yeah, we're very interested with colleagues at Fudan University. We're looking at education and what are the specific benefits that promote good education and what those that detract from it. And then with colleagues in Manchester and down in London, we've been looking at people before the pandemic started and then after the pandemic. And we have noticed that they have problems in actually emotional cognition and also they uh, have higher symptoms of depression. Both of you will be sticking around for the entirety of this program. And between us, what we're also going to do is make some scientific New Year's resolutions. We're also going to be learning how best to keep them. And we've asked our listeners how long they managed to stick to their resolutions. Stay tuned during the show to find out what they said. But first, and most crucial for the world in 2021, has got to be an end to the pandemic. Coronavirus rates are at an all-time high here in the UK, with test results suggesting over 60,000 new infections every day, seemingly the highest rate in the world with the USA close behind. Some are saying that the UK numbers reflect a new variant of the coronavirus known as B117 that appears to be more transmissible and has come to dominate in tested samples. As a result, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has announced another lockdown. It's clear that we need to do more to bring this new variant under control while our vaccines are rolled out. In England, we must therefore go into a national lockdown, which is tough enough to contain this variant. Here to unpack some of this with us is public health expert Nisreen Alwan. Nisreen, welcome. Hello, Phil. I wanted to ask you, is Johnson correct that this new variant is what's responsible for such high COVID rates in the UK? I mean, the whole world is watching uh, disaster unfold, unfortunately, in the UK with this new variant. The answer to the question really is, is, is very difficult to say if it's entirely responsible for the rise. I think there is enough evidence, maybe not very strong evidence, but multiple sources of evidence pointing to one direction that it is this new variant B117 is more transmissible, um, maybe 50 to 70 percent more transmissible. But the control measures weren't really working very well 
even before this variant was, was announced. So these include isolation. So we were hearing reports, a lot of people who needed to isolate weren't isolating for all sorts of you know reasons. And also how the contact tracing wasn't working uh, very well. And also we had different measures. We had what we called the tiers, you know, different restriction measures in different places in the UK, different behaviours also leading up to Christmas. It's very hard to disentangle and, and say with certainty it was entirely due to this new variant. What about schools? Because Prime Minister Johnson also said the following. Primary schools, secondary schools and colleges across England must move to remote provision from tomorrow. How much spread is there in schools? Because this has been a really fraught topic. Transmission in school is not really considered controversial anymore. You know, COVID transmission happened in in schools. And I don't think as well that this is new with just the new variants. So, for example, the latest statistics we had from the Office of National Statistics point that one in 33 secondary school age pupils had COVID and one in 50 of those aged 2 to 10. The other bits of evidence, which is really interesting, is from SAGE, which is the Scientist Committee Advising the government. And they produce evidence looking at how much children transmit. And they found actually that children were more likely to be the index cases. And that means they were more likely to bring the infection into the home. Obviously, this is this is evidence also based on modeling. So there are always margins of uncertainty around it. But I don't think it's controversial anymore that transmission happens. And therefore, when schools do go back at full class sizes, we need to have really good measures to control infection. Giles, could I ask you, you're as a geneticist, have you looked at this new variant? Do you know anything about what makes it so special? Because the coronavirus mutates all the time. Yeah, exactly. So like all viruses, cold viruses, the HIV virus, viruses, because of their rate of of replication, actually mutate all the time. I just want to point out I'm not a virologist and I'm definitely not an expert on this. But I think a few things through my reading, through through just listening to people that concern the scientists about why this could be real. First, this B117 variant is not a single variant. It's actually a series of different changes within the, the genome, the RNA genome of the virus. A couple of them, and this is the concerning thing, actually happen within the spike protein itself. Now, the spike protein, this is what gives the coronavirus its crown shape, okay, is what actually binds to the, the cell surface and actually gets into the cell. So it's critical for the infectivity of the virus. So there is a biological plausibility for why it, it could be in, in more infectious. Secondly, I've seen some preliminary data has not been published yet, so it may not, we'll have to see what happens, which indicates that it could be more infectious within a Petri dish. Nisreen, could you bring some of these aspects together for me and help us sort of predict what might happen for the next few months, maybe for the next year? Well, we're all optimistic about having the vaccine. This is the light at the end of this terrible tunnel we're in. If the lockdown is effective enough and it really brings the infection rates down, then it's a bit of deja vu really for us. Like we said, with the first lockdown, we have to come out from it having a really good test, trace, isolate and support system to really try and contain the infection and then distancing, you know, wearing the mask and having fresh air ventilation measures. We need to have these things in place, particularly, you know, things in school, you know, they need to be prepared from now to have these effective measures, more effective than what was happening, because we can see, obviously, that what was um, in schools wasn't effective enough. 
The other thing about the vaccine, it's really important to understand that vaccinating a minority of the population is unlikely to end the pandemic, because if the virus continues to circulate in the majority of the population, then there's room for it to mutate further and then potentially have you know, mutations that would affect the effectiveness of the vaccine. Obviously, the trial evidence from vaccine tell us that the vaccine is really effective at preventing severe disease from the COVID infection. The information about whether the vaccine actually prevents transmission is still uncertain. And therefore, we need to be cautious around vaccines. They are great. You know, they prevent the vulnerable from getting it. But I think the behavioral changes that we all have to make and the resources that the governments need to put in to make sure these behavioral changes work need to continue for a while until most of us are vaccinated, really. And we're going to be talking to a virological immunologist later in the program more about the vaccine. Could I ask you, Nisreen, if you were optimistic versus pessimistic, what sort of timescale would you give us for the pandemic? Bill, this is a very difficult <laughs> question. <laughs> I don't know. Hopefully, if the vaccine really ha- you know, happens quickly and most of us get vaccinated, then you know, maybe by the summer you know, we'll be in a much better place. But until then, we really, a lot can happen, as we've seen in, in a few months. And let's hope the direction is more positive in the next few months. You've also been looking at people who are left with long COVID symptoms for many months after they get their infection. Since we last reported on that back in the middle of 2020, what new has emerged? And are people getting better from this long term condition? That's the problem, Phil, is that we don't know how many are getting better because we're not measuring long COVID (laughs) in any kind of sensible way. We don't have stats on recovery. We do have some worrying statistics recently also came from the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, that one in 10 people still have symptoms 12 weeks after the onset of infection. And we still don't know the long term effects, the extent of any organ damage. So long COVID is a big problem and it needs much more attention. And actually, at times of crisis like what we're going through now, it's very important to highlight it to people and say, if you're a younger age and you're healthy, there is a chance that you may not be able to function for several weeks or months. And then also we don't know the long term health effects of it. So that needs to be communicated over and over. Just quickly, Barbara, some of these long term health effects do include neurological symptoms, don't they? Absolutely. So there's neurological and psychiatric symptoms, and we we don't really know how they're going to pan out in the long term, whether for some people, fortunately, they'll, they'll get better as time goes on. But for other people, it may require treatments to actually get them better. And we'll have a lot of other problems with people who haven't even got the COVID because there's been so much anxiety and depression amongst people who have just been locked down because we know that loneliness, isolation is not good for you. It's not good for the brain. It's not good for your well-being. And we also know that um, adolescence at school is a time when you're relying on your peers and interacting with your peers and you're becoming an adult. And to miss out on a lot of that behavior is very difficult and could change the way that you start to interact when you come back. And I'm particularly worried also about the very young children, because that is when we're They're learning their social cognitive skills and they're learning how to interact and they're developing the theory of mind and social cognition and all these things. But if you're kind of isolated and maybe you're only with your parents and maybe your parents are having to work at home or go out to work, 
it's very difficult for these children to actually get socialized because there are usually mother and baby groups or you can be in primary school or whatever. But now that school has been so disrupted, I do worry about how they're going to have this natural development. Barbara, thanks. And Nisreen Alwan, thanks very much. It's been great having you on. Nisreen is from the University of Southampton. Why do kittens, puppies and human animals play? From pets rough and tumbling with each other to team sports. Join me, Katie Haler, as I find out why larking about is so important for health. Check out Naked Neuroscience on the Naked Scientist website or wherever you get your podcasts. With me are Giles Yeo and Barbara Sahakian. And later on in the programme... It weighs about a tonne, it's powered by a plutonium thermoelectric generator, and it even has its own drone. This is like a a super yacht with a helicopter on the back. If you don't know what we're on about, stick around. But first, to physics, because 2021 should see the reopening of the Large Hadron Collider. This enormous particle accelerator, the largest ever built, was designed to test leading theories in particle physics. And after a recent two-year shutdown, it will soon be starting its third operational run. Rodri Jones is head of the BEAMS department at CERN, the organization that runs the collider. Rodri, welcome. Hi. Tell us, why is the Large Hadron Collider being shut down? So we've been shut down for the past uh, two years. In fact, we're coming to the end of a two-year shutdown period at the moment to upgrade and consolidate a lot of our equipment. One of the major upgrades that we've undergone is in the physics experiments themselves, where they've upgraded their detectors, basically, to better detect the particles that actually come out of these collisions. The other major upgrade is an upgrade of the injector complex, what we call the chain of machines that's used to accelerate our particles from the hydrogen gas bottle, which is where we get all our protons from, up to nearly the speed of light by the time it actually come, they come into the LHC, And then in the LHC itself, uh, we've undergone a consolidation of our superconducting magnets. So we have around 12,000 of these big superconducting magnets, which are used basically to bend the protons in this large circle that we have, allowing them to come round and round and round again and again to provide us with collisions uh, for for a very long time. What's the outcome of all this? What what amazing physics are you going to get once you reopen because of this? Well, the hope is that when we restart, which will now probably be in early 2022, in fact, for actual physics taking, that we'll then have the third physics run of the LHC, which is expected to last for another three years. Now, up to now, we've been colliding at what we call uh, 13 tera electron volts. This is quite high energy. And we're hoping to push this a bit further because the LHC was, in fact, nominally designed to uh, collide at 14 tera-electron volts. So this means two proton beams of seven tera-electron volts hitting each other. If we manage to reach this energy, this will be the highest energy that we've ever reached with a particle accelerator on the planet. And and the hope is that by doing this, we can understand physics processes uh, to a higher degree. And if we're very lucky, we may start to see very rare events, slight changes from what we expect, which could indicate new physics. And of course, this is what's driving a lot of the research that we're doing. Teams using the Large Hadron Collider have managed to find the Higgs boson, which was one of the aims, I think, of the project. So what's the next step? Are you analyzing it or are you doing other work? 
it's a combination of both. So yes, the Large Hadron Collider, one of its main aims was to see whether this Higgs boson was there or not. Uh, we've managed to find it. Now what we're doing is basically refining our picture of the Higgs boson, so trying to really understand it. And, and this is the study that's ongoing. And this is why we need these vast amounts of data to actually be able to see how the Higgs boson interacts under various different scenarios and conditions. And then the other thing that we're trying to do, like I said, was really look at something new or something different. And this is being done in parallel. So we're looking to see whether there are slight deviations from what we expect the physics to be at this energy or to see whether there are rare events taking place uh, where we need a lot of data and, and suddenly we'll see something completely unexpected. And, and this is, of course, is the, the other thing which would then show uh, that something is out there. We don't understand everything as it is at the moment. I think we've got this standard model of particle physics, which explains everything very, very well, but not all of it. Back when it first opened, people were saying, oh, they're going to open a black hole. They're going to open a parallel universe. Do people still ask you that? They do every now and again, like you've done. <laughs> I, I think the reply often to this is that nature actually creates big bangs that are much, much, much larger than we do with a large Hadron Collider. I mean, in the atmosphere all the time, we're getting these very high energy cosmic rays coming through, which have energies much, much higher than the LHC. I think the advantage of the LHC is that we managed to, to localize these collisions to a very small area. So it means that we can really analyze them, uh, which is difficult to do when we're not sure when they're going to come or where they're going to come. So this is what we've done. We've created the lab itself to allow us to analyze these high energy collisions in an area that, that we can actually manage. Giles? How about this whole story that we got a little while back that for a brief moment in time, neutrinos could go faster than the speed of light? What was all that about? Yeah, that, that in the end, we came down to timing. <laughs> Basically, we created them here in, at CERN and they were sent down to Italy and, and you detect them there. And of course, uh, they're traveling at the speed of light. So it's very difficult then to actually time this in. And in the end, it was found that there was an, an issue with the experiment, in fact, on, on the uh, Italian side with the timing not being quite as precise as we thought it would be, which when you did the maths actually came out that the neutrinos traveled faster than the speed of light. But uh, in the end, no, Einstein uh, is still there and, uh, and everything is, fits with uh, the speed of light. Rodri Jones, thank you very much. That's Rodri from the Beams Department at CERN. Let's move on now to the climate crisis. Although the coronavirus is still many's primary concern, 2020 saw some of the most extreme weather events ever recorded, as well as being virtually tied for hottest year on record. And the fact that we hear this almost every year nowadays should give you some idea of the accelerating state of this catastrophe. So what's going to happen this year? Atmospheric scientist Jenny Turton joins us. She's here to discuss the subject. Jenny, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. You're an expert in the Arctic specifically. So what's your predictions for that area for 2021? Well, it does seem like year on year in the Arctic, we're having record-breaking um, circumstances, either record sea ice levels, fastest melt, something like this. So it wouldn't surprise me if 2021 followed in the same vein. Just over September last year, we had the second lowest sea ice record. So perhaps we could see another record low sea ice year it also froze up quite slowly this year. Normally it starts to freeze in about September. This year it was mid-October. So potentially it's not as thick or as solid as it normally is. And so maybe we have quite a lot of melting in the sea ice this year. What about other types of extreme weather across the world? Because in 2020, what we had wildfires in Brazil and the Western North American, Australia, might it be the same sort of story? 
So I've been reading up on the hurricane prediction for next year, and, and that doesn't seem to be as extreme. They do predict that it's going to be above average. So average is around 12 storms, maybe six or seven of them are hurricanes. And I think for the next year that, or this year, they're predicting around six. Um, so we're having more than normal, I believe, but maybe not as extreme as 2020, where we had over 30 tropical storms. Mm. And we've also got La Nina. Is that correct? This, this weather phenomenon across the, the world and the Pacific, especially. Yeah, that's right. It sort of started last year. And I think there are thoughts that it will continue on to this year. And so La Nina is where you get a buildup of cold water along the coast of Chile. And then you get a lot of um, different uh, weather patterns happening because of that. So typically you get slightly drier in the United States and wetter in Australia. That's kind of a, a big cause. But you also get globally during La Nina, it's a little bit cooler. So it was quite interesting that 2020 was still one of the hottest years, even though we had a La Nina phase. Barbara, I'm thinking of the environmentalist Naomi Klein, who talks about all the different ways there are to to look away from this catastrophe because it, it's so painful. What psychologically do you think is behind that? Obviously, one thing to do is to direct your attention from something that's giving you a lot of anxiety. So some people will choose to do that. What I'm pleased about is that so many people have chose to engage with actually trying to do something about this themselves and with institutions and things like that. So I think we're in a much better shape. I think it's very difficult for people to deal with uncertainty. Hugo Critchley has done some marvelous experiments showing that with uncertainty, we get activations in areas of the brain and we have a difficulty dealing with uncertainty. And with, I was listening to the radio just the other day and and they were talking about the fires that they'd had in Australia. And every time now it gets hot, people begin to wonder, oh, is it going to start up again? So this sort of constant stress, it's almost like a chronic stress that people are under worrying about these things. And sometimes if you don't feel you have any resilience or mastery over it, the preference is to avoid dealing with it at all. But fortunately, I think many people have realized it's just time now to engage. We all have to engage. We have to do what we can do as individuals. And then we have to force governments and institutions to also do what they should do. Jenny, ring a bell. Yeah, that does sound does sound quite right. I mean, sometimes I even find it hard spending day after day researching these things. You know, sometimes it's nice to distract myself with a YouTube video of a cat or something. <laughs> but no, it does seem that now is the time when a lot of countries are getting on board with the climate crisis, including China. And hopefully once Joe Biden becomes president, they will rejoin as well the climate talks. Here he is, in fact, promising to do exactly that for the Paris Agreement. First thing I would do the day one as president, I'd rejoin the Paris Climate Accord, which we, Barack and I, put together. Jenny, what does that mean? This is obviously the second biggest carbon emitting country in the world. Yeah, so it was quite a shock for a lot of people when Donald Trump decided to pull out because, like you say, they're the second biggest emitter and they had joined the Paris Agreement under Barack Obama. Could you explain exactly what the Paris Agreement means? Yeah, the Paris Agreement is a legally binding treaty that was signed by 196 countries back in 2015 with the aim of tackling climate change. Every four or five years, the countries that are in the agreement will give an update on what they have done to tackle it and also put further targets in place to try to reduce their emissions. And what kind of targets are we talking about, do you know? Well, it varies depending on the country, because obviously some countries will be able to do a lot more, should do a lot more than others. Um, so the UK, for instance, their target is to um, 
use electric cars only by 2040 and also pledge to go net zero, which means the amount of CO2 they're outputting, they will intake with something like forests or some offset projects. As we're recording this, in fact, we've just found out that Trump has just signed a document allowing looking for oil and gas in protected northern lands. What's going on in in this area of the world, do you know? Well, yes, um, I did see earlier that there was some idea that Trump might be allowing people to mine or to put in some pipelines in the Arctic. I think partially um, it's a long line of other things that he's already done in the environmental sector. I think there are seven agreements or important treaties that he's pulled out of or, or dismantled while he's been in power. So I do think it's kind of a last ditch attempt. We've also got a big climate change conference coming up that was supposed to be 2020 is now 2021. And this is going to be in Scotland. What is that going to be? Because I I think people are tired of hearing commitments and and resolutions and feeling like that's just hot air. Yeah, so it's the COP26 and um, the COP stands for the Conference of the Parties and it's the 26th meeting. But like you say, people seem to speak a lot and not too much happens at these conferences. Almost every year people are not quite happy with the outcomes that maybe they don't reach enough or they don't agree enough. The hope is in the Glasgow one this year that the UK and other nations will be able to provide financial aid to developing countries to help them really tackle climate change, which they might not be able to afford and which they probably also didn't contribute largely to. And also we're hoping this time to look at efforts of how to offset CO2, so how to pull out some of the CO2 from the atmosphere that we already have there. Those of us who aren't listening to this and are leading a country, I think we'll still probably be thinking, is there anything I can do? Giles, I believe that one of the best things a single person can do is change their diet. It is. It is. We particularly here in Western Europe, uh, Australasia and and United States, we eat far too much meat. Look, I am I am not a diet evangelical or zealot. You know, I eat meat, but I think it is undoubtedly true that we eat way too much meat per capita. And the problem with meat are twofold. First of all, there is deforestation in order to make sure that we can actually keep the various ruminants and cows and sheep and what have you in grass. And there's also the gases that are that are released by by these animals in in of themselves. So actually, if we as a species are able to drop our meat intake even by 10, 20 percent, I'm not talking about turning everyone vegetarian. The actual impact on, on carbon emissions would actually be enormous, enormous. Potentially a good target for a New Year's resolution that's coming up after the break. For now, Jenny Turton, thanks so much for joining us. Jenny is from Friedrich Alexander University in Germany. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. This week, we're making our scientific New Year's resolutions for 2021 with help from special guests Barbara Sahakian and Giles Yeo. On the way, the COVID vaccine makes its way around the world, and up goes the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope. But something much more pressing first. Many of us are in the first few weeks of trying to keep our New Year's resolution. Of course, many of us don't make them at all. Whether we're not bothered, whether they seem like setting yourself up to fail, I'm actually in the latter camp. Giles, I don't know. Do you have a resolution? You know, I think I'm perfect. So I'm not. <laughs> no, that's not that's that, that's not true. I do have a resolution, actually, particularly since we've hit lockdown number three. 
it was far easier for me to maintain my exercise when I was commuting to work because I just got up and I commuted to work. I didn't have to say exercise, exercise. Whereas now when we're not commuting, I try and recreate my commute in the morning. I wake up at half six and I go cycle around like a mad person and, and, and then come back. So my resolution is to try and stick to that through, through, through lockdown. Interesting. Okay. Barbara, how about you? Well, if I can give a plug to my uh, paper in the conversation, which I wrote with uh, Christelle Langley and uh, Yun Fong Fong, we have six ways to reboot your brain after a hard year of COVID-19, according to science. And the first one would be be kind and helpful because it's very activates your reward system. So actually making other people happy makes yourself happy. So it's a very good thing to do. The second one is exercise, as Giles has just told us about. So that's very good. And that's what I call an all-rounder because it's good for your physical health. It's good for your mental health. It's good for your mood. It's good for your immune system. And it helps you live longer. So it's, it's very beneficial. And then we were talking about, of course, with Giles here, nutrition. Eating well is very important. And there's been some very large studies using the UK Biobank which show that if you know if you have cereals without a lot of sugar in them, the sort of muesli type things, it's very good for your brain. It actually affects your brain growth and it's uh, very beneficial for your cognition. So that's something that you can do. And then keeping socially connected because it's so easy, especially with this pandemic and the lockdowns to get isolated and to feel lonely. And that's very bad for you. So it's important. And we found that people who do keep socially connected have less depression. And then learn something new. It's very important that we, you know, have lifelong learning and keep our brains active throughout our life and drive that neural circuitry that's in there for, you know, includes important areas like the hippocampus. And that we know is very important for you. And finally, sleep properly, have good quality and quantity of sleep. And that's great for the immune system. It's great for getting rid of toxics in the brain. And it's very important for your creativity and thinking. These sound like resolutions that you could probably keep to as well. We've asked our listeners via Twitter how long they managed to stick to their New Year's resolutions. And what we found is that of those who said, yes, I, I even bother keeping it at all, about the same number said that they kept their resolution for many months as the people who did it for only a few weeks. And actually, the same number only managed a few days. Is that about what you expect? And are people making resolutions that are doomed to fail, like like me, a skeptic, thinks? <laughs> I agree with you. It's partially what are these resolutions. They have to be realistic. I mean, you know, if you're going to sort of suddenly do something really dramatic, it might be better to do it in sort of small steps. But the ones that I mentioned, which would be very beneficial for people, are easy to achieve. They're not that difficult. So I think that's a good thing to do. And I think a lot of it is really just deciding that um, every day, if you try to do a bit of what you've suggested you're going to do, eventually it will become a regular habit for you. You won't even need to think about it. You'll just do it. This is relevant, especially for your subject, Charles, because the top three, according to a recent YouGov poll, actually, the top three resolutions that people made last year were all diet or exercise related. Are people making unsustainable versions of those? And, and is Barbara's advice, does that apply to food and diet as well? Oh, undoubtedly it does. I mean, because, uh, I, you know, it's either going to eat less sugar. Eat less sugar is fine, right? But if you're going to say, I'm going to give up sugar forever, 
okay, you know, like, how realistic is that going to be? I'm going to lose 12 stone. Ah, yeah, but you were 10 stone to begin with. I don't know how realistic that is, right? And so I think it's all about making realistic suggestions. You know, Barbara's suggestions are, are fantastic because it's eat more muesli. Come on, I can do that. And I think the other thing is particularly when you're thinking about diet or when you're thinking about weight, think about what you're trying to do. And I think too many of us think about weight per se because we're interested in how we're looking rather than health. So I think if we're thinking about, I'm going to try and improve my health this year, I think that should be achievable rather than just saying that I want to lose all this weight so that I, I can look like, I wish I could look like Brad Pitt, but I'm not going to be able to look like Brad Pitt because of my genes and many other things. You know, you did so say I think, that you were perfect on the other hand, Charles. I, I did. I did say I'm perfect. That's me. But yeah, no, I agree with Barbara about, about being, being realistic and, and picking things that are going to be sustainable. You two have almost convinced me, I think. And and listeners, if this has convinced any of you to make a New Year's resolution, send us in a message. We're on Twitter and Facebook, Naked Scientists, or pop an email in to chris at nakedscientists.com. If you've got a question you'd like answered or a comment on the show, do likewise. Now back to the coronavirus. We've already talked about when it might end, and we recently found out that more vaccines on the way. The first doses of the coronavirus vaccine developed by Oxford University will be given to patients today, just five days after it was approved. And over 15 countries worldwide have begun administering various coronavirus vaccines to their citizens. But there are still open questions about how they work and how quickly they can be distributed. So viral immunologist Zanya Stamataki is here to explain. Zanya, welcome. Hello. What's your picture at the moment of vaccine progress in general worldwide? Well, aren't we fortunate? I mean, we've got over 200 vaccines in development, a handful already approved in different parts of the world. The data from clinical trials are pouring in, and guess what? The vaccines work. We now need to get the logistics right to protect our vulnerable and then the rest of us. And it's important to note, of course, that while vaccinated, although we are protected, then we may still transmit the virus to others. This Oxford vaccine, can you remind us what exactly is it? Well, the Oxford vaccine has used a harmless chimpanzee virus to infect ourselves and pass on a message. The genetic information so that we can make coronavirus spike protein ourselves. This stimulates our immune system and we prepare our defences, which takes a couple of weeks to happen. And after that, our body is ready. And if infected with the coronavirus, our immune system can stop it in its tracks before we get COVID. We've got a question for you about it as well from listener James, who asks... Can you explain the Oxford COVID vaccine approval by MRHA, the UK regulator, and what new data is now available since their, and I quote from him, horrendous first reporting in early December? Seems as though the UK population is being offered a 62% minimally effective solution to me. What is he talking about? And what, what is your opinion? Well, first of all, we need to separate the vaccine effectiveness from efficacy data, Efficacy is the 62% number that uh, your listener was quoting, and he's talking about the outcomes of clinical trials that are very short and contain a small number of people. Now, don't get me wrong, the vaccine has been given to thousands and thousands of people before the clinical trial is concluded, but only a small proportion of these people has become infected. So we are getting data back from a small amount of people. Now, the Oxford vaccine was given to people in two different doses. 
Some of them showed 62% efficacy in that arm of the trial. Others that received a lower dose at the beginning of the trial showed up to 90-odd percent um, efficacy, which is all very good. But let's remind ourselves that the FDA had said that they will approve any vaccine with efficacy above 50%. And for flu vaccinations, we accept vaccines from 20 to 60% efficacy every year. So the Oxford vaccine, we expect to be highly effective. And the effectiveness data is going to change as the vaccine is rolled out and we get data from real life people. What would you say to someone who, who said, no, I want the Pfizer vaccine. That one's got a higher number. That looks better to me. Um, We can't really make that decision based on the data that we have because we haven't compared vaccinations side by side. And as scientists, that's how we make comparisons. We get the same population, we vaccinate them with the same preparations, and then we expose them to the disease and we get data back. So this has not happened. What I can say to people that are worrying about whether which vaccine is going to be more effective is... I would personally accept any vaccine that was given to me that was approved by MHRA, and I'll be grateful for it as well. I think a vaccine that is approved that works is tremendous news. We as as a population are going to respond differently, but if the vaccine works, take it. Giles, I'd like to ask you actually about some of the people who don't share this kind of trust, because am I right that it actually overlaps in strange ways with diet? It does, actually. So, you know, look, I interact on social media and otherwise with diet evangelicals, okay, who believe one diet versus the other. So they're crazy low carbers, for example, like extreme low carbers, people who are carnivore diets and and what have you. And I have found anecdotally, I want to point out, I didn't do a study that the Venn diagram of diet evangelicals and anti-vaxxers or anti-COVID or anti-maskers, they actually overlap quite a lot. Why might this be the case? I think underlying it is probably there's a lot of pseudoscience that that actually goes into either camps that are, and also a lot of going on to Instagram influences and social media influences and seeing what people have to say. I think there is also an element of, I want to live natural. I want to live real. I don't want to inject something, you know, created in a lab. Look, this is entirely obviously nonsense, particularly since they're probably taking, you know, paracetamol or or ibuprofen for the headache. Okay, but I think there's probably a little bit of that as well. And there is also another group of people who have been calling COVID as a diet related illness. Now, clearly, our metabolic state um, living with obesity or type two diabetes increases the chances of us suffering severely from COVID infection. Okay, but COVID infection is an infectious disease. It's not a diet-related disease. So it's very interesting just to see this swimming around out in, in, in the dark net of social media. Zanya, there are other concerns arising that I'd like to address with you. People are a little bit worried about the UK delaying the second dose of the Pfizer vaccine to people who have received the first one. The manufacturers said three weeks. The UK is saying could be more like months. What's behind that? And is that scientifically sound? Well, as scientists that work in the lab, we get very nervous when we deviate from a protocol. And Pfizer has only tested their vaccine with a booster within the three weeks, like you said. The Oxford vaccine was tested with later booster jabs too. Now, we know, however, from experience that vaccination boosters continue to work well after several weeks. In the UK, we have an urgent public health need with one in 50 of us currently infected, and we are losing around 900 people a day to COVID. I mean, this decision was made to save more lives, but it is important for us to gather data to inform future vaccination protocols for different patient groups. One other thing from listener Richard, who asks, 
What I'd like to know is what are the risks of developing a serious disease if you catch COVID on the same day as having the first dose of a vaccine? Is there any reduction in your risk of serious disease? Within the day that you are vaccinated, you have not had enough time to generate protective immune responses. As a rule of thumb, you should calculate about a week until your responses start to kick off. And then beyond that, up to two weeks when you have your mounting decent memory cells that will protect you from reinfection. So within the first couple of weeks, I would say take utmost care. You are not protected yet. And this is in your little pamphlet as well that you receive when you become vaccinated. So it takes a little while for the immune system to develop immunity. And this is the whole idea behind vaccination. By getting our jab, we are giving our immune system a a sort of stimulation early on so that when we come into contact with the real thing, we'll be good to jump to it. Zania, if I can ask you to make some predictions for me, how long do you see this pandemic lasting? Well, it depends on ourselves, really. It depends on our personal behavior. You do need the vaccine to generate immunity for a population so that we can protect each other for a long period of time. But if you keep to the rules as they have been advised to, mask yourself so that you can protect others from infection if you are asymptomatic, keep your distance so you don't catch the virus yourself, wash your hands, avoid touching your your face like I do all the time without realizing and I've I've become so used to my sanitizer now because I just can't stop touching my face. If you stick to the rules, you can protect yourself. And in fact, we know from countries around the world that have been very, very strict at sticking to the rules that they can control infection. And this way, when you have outbreaks that are small, they can quash them very, very quickly. So it is possible for us to have good news even in the absence of vaccination. But for us to eradicate the virus as a problem, we do need to vaccinate ourselves. Zanya Stamataki, thank you very much. Zanya is from the University of Birmingham. I'm joined by geneticist Giles Yeo and neuropsychologist Barbara Sahakian as we look ahead to a year full of science. And finally this week, the exciting space science coming up. Planetary geoscientist Luke Daly is with us. Luke, hello. Hello, great to be here. As someone who analyzes rock samples that have come from space, isn't there one mission this year that you're particularly excited about? There's a number of missions that are very exciting in that regard. Uh, Though having said that, one of the sort of key missions in my head for 2021 will be the NASA Perseverance rover and it's a companion, their helicopter Ingenuity, that will be landing on Mars in February of this year. What is that doing? It's doing a whole bunch of things. Any mission to Mars is searching for evidence of life on Mars, looking for environments that could support life uh, in Mars's past when it was hotter and wetter, or looking for biosignatures, so organic compounds and molecules that are sort of the smoking gun for past life or modern life on Mars, if any. But it's also got a sort of auxiliary aim, and that is to drill some uh, rock samples from the Jezero crater, cache them away safely, and leave them on the surface of Mars to then be brought back to Earth through later missions. Here's actually a clip of Chris Smith describing the Perseverance rover on our show last year. It weighs about a tonne. It's powered by a plutonium thermoelectric generator, And it even has its own drone. This is like a super yacht with a helicopter on the back. Luke, 
there's a bit of a monster here. Is this a first bringing back this sample then? Absolutely. It's uh, it'll be the first time we've ever done this. Uh, the only samples we have from Mars are meteorites, which some large asteroids smacked into the red planet, blasted the rocks off the surface and sent them on spinning on their way to us. Bringing back samples from Mars is a titanic undertaking, and it's been in the pipeline and in the sort of hearts and minds of planetary scientists for as long as I've been alive and probably a lot longer. And it's really exciting that after all that work and all that effort, Perseverance is the beginning of this Mars sample return campaign. When are you going to get the bit of rock back? So at the end of a very long campaign, which Perseverance is the beginning, there's going to be an orbiter and lander and ascent vehicle, a mothership to go collect the samples Perseverance cached, launch them up into uh, low Earth orbit, capture them with the mothership and send them on their way back to Earth. And obviously that all takes time. Not all those missions have been green yet. I really hope they are. And so I've been told anywhere between 2028 and 2032. Oh, my God. That's a long time. And that's a long time. It's over a decade. But what it heartens me is there's actual physical numbers now. All through my career, Mars sample return has always been a decade away, always been a decade away, always been a decade away. Now it's a decade away with actual numbers and a mission on the ground on Mars caching samples. So... We're really excited that this is actually going to happen now. Barbara, do you ever get this in your field? You wait a decade for your samples, your data to come back in. Well, I have to say, this is really look-ahead planning. Obviously, you have to have very strong frontal lobe functionality for people who go into this area. I would like to have some studies that do that because actually would be wonderful to have the finances to do these longer-term studies that go on for a very long time. But What I try to do in my own research is have some studies that are relatively brief in the sense that they go on for a year or two years, and then other studies that may be more three to five year studies. For my own personality (laughs) and motivation, it's very good to get some short-term gain as well as some look ahead to some longer-term, very interesting findings. How about you, Charles? How's your patience? I don't see patients personally. I'm a reductionist. I look at colors, liquids. But, but that being said, we do take advantage of other people who have done long-standing studies. So in particular, we, we're currently doing a study with, uh, with the group in Bristol called ALSPAC, Avon Longitudinal Study of Parents and Children. And these are kids born between 1990 and 1992. So we now have this rich longitudinal data. Clearly, we're interested in growth and rates of obesity, et cetera, et cetera. And so those are the kind of studies which clearly have taken a long time to put together, more, you know, close to 30 years now, that we can take advantage of. I I don't know if I'd want to set one up myself, I'd have to say. Well, talking of projects that do take a long time, there's another one that's going up in 2021 that's been in the works for a while. Luke, can you tell us about the James Webb Space Telescope? Yeah, so the James Webb is another one that astronomers, astrophysicists, cosmologists have been looking forward to for decades now, certainly longer than I've been in science. It's essentially the mother of all space telescopes. It dwarfs Hubble by six times, uh, so its mirror is six times bigger. And what it's able to do is essentially look back right to the dawn of our universe looking at the first galaxies and the first stars that formed right on the edge of what we can see to really help us understand how our universe came into being, how the first galaxies formed, but also kind of closer to home. It can look into our local neighborhood in our galaxy, into the galactic core where stars are forming right now, 
and the planetary systems around them are starting to coalesce and accrete together to really get a handle on how planets form and planetary systems form. There's a long list, actually. I won't go through them all. But one of the really cool things it can do is look at and measure the atmospheres of planets around other star systems. So again, looking into that habitable worlds, do any star systems or planets, exoplanets show signs of life or show signs of habitability by looking at and being able to capture the light that passes from the star through the atmosphere, kind of like a really distant sunrise and see how that light has changed by passing through that planet's atmosphere on its way to us. And we can figure out what's inside it. So yeah, uh, everything from origin of the universe to origin of habitable planets. <laughs> In fact, it's such a big operation. We actually did a full show about it, but that was back in 2018. And here's Bill Ox from NASA talking a little bit about the telescope's design. Our primary mirror of our telescope is about seven times larger than Hubble's primary mirror. That drives a lot of different technologies. We have to be able to fold our mirror up so it fits inside the rocket. Since it's infrared, it has to be kept really, really cold. It's a bigger operation to get it up there than Hubble was as well. Am I, am I right that it's going way far out in space? Yes. Yeah, so Hubble uh, was in Earth's orbit in its kind of local neighborhood. Where James Webb's going is much further out. It's about 1.5 million kilometers away at a place known as Lagrange Point 2, uh, which is a place where the gravitational attraction of the sun and the Earth cancel out. And from there, it's stable. It stays in kind of the same spot in relation to the Earth and can observe the universe around us. Unfortunately, it's far away. So unlike Hubble, we can't send the space shuttle up to fix it if anything goes wrong. So once it's up, it's up and we can't bring it back again. There's one other thing among the other space projects that are planned for 2021 that I'd like to talk about. And it's the developments with the project Artemis trying to, to get humans on the moon, maybe more permanently. Yeah, so that's, again, another really exciting series of missions building up to the Lunar Gateway project to get a space station in orbit around the moon and get a permanent crewed colony on the lunar surface. In the build up to that, NASA and co are going to be testing a bunch of rocketry systems. One kind of really exciting one coming out of the UK is they're going to put a lander on the moon, which contains a bunch of different craft, including one built in the UK, which is the first legged rover. It's about the size of a shoebox. And it's going to be scuttling around on the lunar surface doing some really interesting science. And yeah, it's just going to kind of build up and grow from here. Uh, it's a really exciting time to be in space science. Giles, when people do get up there, they've obviously got some nutritional requirements that need to be dealt with. How are they going to survive and, and what stuff has got to be kept in mind for them? So, I mean, a problem in space is primarily is the lack of gravity. And because of the lack of gravity, it's maintaining muscle and, and, and bone mass. Now, some people think that, okay, well, I'm going to maintain it by eating protein. Because obviously, I, if I eat evil carbs and if I eat fat, all I'm going to do is get fat. The problem is this. Unlike carbs and particularly fat, we don't have stores of protein. So in other words, the protein that we eat is functional. It's either gone to repairing damage or building muscles. If you're actually exercising, if you don't use it, it gets converted into fat. So I think a critical thing about long-term missions, either in orbit or on the moon in low gravity, is to maintain enough physical activity to maintain your muscle mass and to maintain your bone mass, and obviously then to eat effectively to then keep those growing and, and building at the right rate. Obviously a lot going on in space. Luke, do you think 2021 is going to be an exciting year for space science? 
absolutely we're going to be utterly spoiled there's a whole wealth of really awesome missions going up and coming back uh, this year so i'm really excited seeing the scientific insights we get thanks very much that's luke daly from the university of glasgow and we must leave it there this week thanks very much to all of our guests Nizreen Alwan, Rodri Jones, Jenny Turton, Zanya Stamataki, and Luke Daly. And a very special thanks to Barbara Sahakian and Giles Yeo. Next time, we're talking textiles. From secret knitting addictions to Morse code hidden in scarves, we're delving into the science of fabric. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the Institute for Continuing Education at the University of Cambridge and is supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Phil Sansom. And from all of us here at the Naked Scientist team, until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.